Amen. Thank you, worship team, for singing truth over us today. And Daniel, thanks for praying truth over us today. Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. Uh, for those of you who are regulars, uh, always an honor together with the body of Christ. I think on first Sundays, I'm reminded of that more than, more than most because we take communion together on first Sundays. It's a sacred and sweet time together as the fellowship the body of Christ. If you're visiting with us today, we're, we're glad to have you. We're honored that you would trust us with your time and our desires that um, not that you would just make contact with us, but that you would have contact with God, that you would experience his presence, uh, his love, and that you would hear from him today. That's our prayer for you. Uh, anybody join us online, welcome you as well. And as we say often, um, we're glad that we can, we can come to you uh, through, this, uh, through this platform, but we recognize it's not enough. And so if you're watching this or listening to this at home or you're at work and you're by yourself, we were created for human contact, and, and our desire is to, is to connect with you. And so whatever platform that you're watching this on or listening on, you can always hit the prayer tab or the info at srchurch.tv email address and connect with us. And that's for all of you who are here today. Maybe you might be in that position on a Sunday coming up uh, where you're at home, sickness, whatever is going on. Like we, we want to acknowledge that this is like a great way to, to get the word out, but it's not enough. We were created for community and human contact, and so always want to connect with you. Um, well, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2 to get started, and then we're going to land in Mark 14, as Daniel just read. Um, for those of you who've been with us the last three weeks, we've been in this uh, Acts 2, 41 and 42 uh, for three weeks, and this will be the fourth week. We'll get to move on somewhat after today, um, but we've been taking our time as a church, walking through Acts 2 together, the dawn of the church, uh, making observations from this, these early moments in the church, and really using the story of the early church as somewhat of a mirror for us to look into um, by which to make observations about ourselves and to ask questions. What things matter to the early church so that we can know what should matter to us? Are there things that we have drifted from? Are there things that are just missing altogether? Are there things that matter to us that we're pursuing as a church that shouldn't matter at all? And the way that we, we find the answers to these questions is by looking into the scriptures and what God calls his church to be and what God calls his church to do. And so in Acts 2, this is really like the beginning moments of the church. And what we noticed is that about three weeks ago, this idea that this, these early believers were devoted to some very specific things, uh, the first of which was the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to that. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the prayers. And today we're going to look at this idea. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. I want to start in Acts 2, verse 41, and then read verse 42. So those who received his word were baptized. Remember, Peter just preached. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is a big moment in the church. We've talked about that a couple of times. But I want to stop for a minute and talk about the significance of why it matters. A mistake we could make from this is, is to look at this and to read this and go, Wow, what an exciting day. 3,000? Like that's a big deal, right? We should celebrate and be excited about that. And the mistake would be to say, let's get excited when we hit 3,000, right? Let's get excited about big numbers. Let's get excited about high attendance. And I don't think that's at all the heart behind why this is written. I think what we learn from this is that it's important to stop and take inventory on what the Lord is doing, whether it's one or 3,000, right? That we would celebrate that. We would acknowledge the work of the Lord in our midst, in our church, in our lives, in our families. This past Sunday at the all-members meeting, uh, we walked through, as we normally do, uh, numbers from last year, 
And Mike Devenuto did a great job. He's one of our elders just leading us through that in a way where it was not just about charts and graphs and numbers and trends, but that those numbers represent real lives. We had 25 individual people join the church last year. And so you'd be tempted to go, well, it's not 3,000. I mean, you know, it's 25. But no, we celebrate that. Those 25 lives that have joined up with us in this mission that Jesus has given to us for this community to the ends of the earth. We're excited about that. That's, that's worth celebrating as much as 3,000. We talked about we had seven baptisms last year. Like every one of those baptisms is an individual Christ follower who has miraculously placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And he has forgiven their sins. He has washed over them. He has called them his own, forgiven them, redeemed them, adopted them into the family of God, each one of those seven. And we made note that six out of those seven were baptized by their fathers. And that's worth celebrating, right? That discipleship is happening in the homes. And as a church, we come alongside you and we equip you for that. And we help you in that. We encourage you in that. And so the reason the 3,000 is in here is not so that we would be impressed or get some kind of unrealistic benchmark and say, well, when we hit 3,000 a day, that'll be exciting. No, it's like, no, stop and just take inventory. Was it 3,000 or was it one? Because both are worth celebrating. And so these 3,000 who were baptized, who became believers, now become the church. And verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And today we're going to focus on this breaking of bread um, that they were devoted to. Now, in the early church, the word used here gets used for this, this thing we call communion or the Lord's Supper, like that kind of breaking of bread. But it also gets used to describe what happens when a family sits down at a table and shares a meal, the breaking of bread. And what we're going to see today is that oftentimes in the early church, they were connected to each other. That communion or the Lord's Supper was celebrated kind of at the end of sharing a meal together. Matter of fact, this is what we're going to see in the upper room with Jesus and the disciples. They're sharing a meal together, and then they share communion. Matter of fact, I think this continued until it became such a, such a distraction and an issue. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to the church. He's like, hey, i got to point out some, some issues here. I noticed that when y'all take the Lord's Supper together... Um, what's happening is everybody who gets there early is like just stuffing away all the food so if somebody comes in late or is last in line there's nothing left so there's no there's not y'all even sharing a meal together matter of fact y'all are drinking so much wine right that by the time you get to the cup of communion there's nothing left and then he may, he asked this question don't you have homes that you can do this in and so it was probably in moments like this that the church began to say, you know what, let's separate the two so we don't water down the significance and the reverence due to the Lord's Supper and communion. And so from that point forward, the church begins to separate the two. But when we read about breaking of bread here in Acts 2.42, I think it's most specifically talking about what we refer to in the church today as communion or the Lord's Supper. And so what I want today is I want to dig into this Lord's Supper. I want to dig into the background together and understand where this comes from. In Mark chapter 14, you could also go to Matthew 26. These are parallel accounts in the Gospels. In Mark 14, we're going to learn some things about this communion, this Lord's Supper, where it comes from, and even a more, I think, vivid understanding of the significance of it and the weight of it. 
So what's happening here is the week that Jesus is crucified, he's crucified towards the end of this Passover week. This is a time where um, every year the Jews would, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this Passover week had several different uh, components to it that were you know, religiously symbolic and significant to the nation of Israel. But really at the peak of it all is this Passover meal that they would celebrate together. And what's interesting is this Passover meal began about 1,450 plus years before Jesus walks on the earth. See, for 1,450 years, the nation of Israel has been celebrating this Passover week and this Passover meal as a reminder of something God had done for the nation of Israel. And so if you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus begins with the nation of Israel in slavery and bondage in Egypt. And it was a very bitter and very brutal time for the nation of Israel. Oftentimes, the nation of Israel was offering up prayers either individually or collectively. God, see our misery, see our pain, hear our cry for mercy, deliver us from slavery. And so in Exodus, uh, God begins to speak to Moses, and he calls Moses to step forward as a leader to go to Pharaoh and to begin this process of letting God's people go from slavery. And to get Pharaoh's attention, God delivers these miraculous plagues that, that really kind of get Pharaoh's attention. He's paying attention. It's not till the last plague that he really wakes up to the severity of what he's doing to God's people. This is where the Passover comes from. The last plague was the death angel to sweep over Egypt and to take the life of the firstborn child in every household. And God told the nation of Israel, here's what I want you to do. On the afternoon before that evening, I want the dads to go out and I want you to find an innocent spotless lamb from among the herd, I want you to slaughter this lamb. And you're going to take the blood from this lamb. You're going to sprinkle it over the doorposts of your house. And for every house that has blood of the lamb over the doorpost, as the death angel sweeps through, it will pass over that house and spare the firstborn child. And so this got Pharaoh's attention. And after this, Pharaoh's like, you get your stuff and you get out of here. The scriptures record that the nation of Israel left quickly. They left with haste. They left before Pharaoh could change his mind. They hit the ground and took off through the desert, through the wilderness, and eventually to the promised land. And so God told the nation of Israel, listen, lest you forget what I've done for you, I want you every year to set apart a time to celebrate and to remember my rescue of you from slavery. And he instituted this Passover meal. And so for over 1,450 years, with the exception of times when Israel was wandering or not celebrating, were in captivity, the Passover meal had been celebrated faithfully. And it had begun to morph from its original design, not just an intent, but the different elements. So by the time you get to where Jesus is on the ground with the disciples celebrating the Passover meal, um, it, there were all different elements and traditions that had been infused into it. But there are some specific elements that no matter what version of the Passover meal you were celebrating, there were these basic elements that were, that were present every time the Passover meal was, was, was celebrated. The first of these is the lamb. The lamb that was, that was butchered in the afternoon before the Passover meal. That was, if it was a Passover meal, there was a lamb that was slaughtered and then roasted. Um, there were also these pieces of matzah bread, this unleavened bread, which is really important. Part of God's prescription for the nation of Israel is that before the Passover meal, they would sweep out the house and make sure there were no crumbs of any leaven in the house. This leaven symbolized sin, hidden sin in the corners of our hearts. And, and so that would be a cleaning of the house. And so there was these pieces of matzah bread. And in most occasions, it was three pieces of matzah bread. And they would take these pieces of matzah bread and wrap them in fine white silk cloth and fold them up. 
Not only was there matzah bread and lamb, there were bitter herbs that were present. There was a sticky paste. We'll talk about that in a moment. And there was a glass of, or a jar of salt water. In addition to all these things, there were four really important elements. It was the four cups of wine. And we'll see in a minute that each of these cups held a really specific significance to the nation of Israel. And so we get into Mark 14 then. I want you to listen to what happens in Mark 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, that's another name for Passover. It's either the Passover meal or the, the, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. So on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples, which were likely Peter and John, uh, set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. If you notice the great care uh, that goes into the preparation part of this. The idea of preparation is mentioned three times in this passage. And so if there was ever a time for Jesus to go, you know what, that Passover meal, we're kind of done with that, we're ready to move on, this would have been an opportune time. For Jesus to say, you know what, what's about to happen tomorrow is going to way overshadow God's rescue in the nation of Israel from slavery. And so guys, we don't really need to do the Passover meal. We can just kind of move on. Like, I'm about to institute something new, something fresh, something that's more reflective of what I'm going to do for you. And so the Passover meal, I mean, it, it served us for a time, but now it's time to move on. But he doesn't. From Jesus' perspective, the celebration of the Passover meal is important, so important, right, that he, he takes great efforts to make sure that there's a preparation so much so that prophetically, like, there's already a space established by God. The upper room is already selected. It's already been prepared by the owner, and the owner doesn't even know. And this is the great care that God goes to to set up this Passover meal. And then Jesus commissions two of his disciples, hey, guys, go and make sure it's ready. I picture Peter and John just sweeping the corners, making sure there's no unleavened, you know, no leavened bread, you know, make sure there's no crumbs. Let's make sure it's ready. So when Jesus comes in, right, our rabbi, our master, our teacher, we will be ready for the Passover meal. We'll come back to this idea of preparation at the end. What I want to do now is I want to walk you through, again, there are a lot of variations of this Passover meal. It's um, oftentimes referred to as the Seder dinner, um, still practiced today. Um, there is both a Jewish version and a Christian version of the Seder dinner, as we'll see uh, this morning together. And so I want to walk through the kind of the basic flow of the Seder dinner for you to see what Jesus and his disciples would have experienced together in this upper room at the Passover meal. So the first thing that would take place in a traditional Jewish home um, started with mom. And mom had two significant responsibilities. One, it was her job to prepare the house. So she would clean, like spring clean, flip over the couches clean. You know what I'm talking about? Like that once a year de-cleaning. But it had significant religious symbolism. 
It had spiritual value because what she was symbolizing is not that I would just have a clean house, but that as worshipers, we'd have clean hearts. And so she took great care to make sure there was no leaven, bread, no crumbs anywhere in the house, symbolizing the need for us to have our hearts cleansed from our sin. And then the mom would begin to recite a prayer and light candles to start the dinner. And then what would happen is that the father would invite the family to come sit around the table, and they always took great care to leave an empty seat for Elijah, believing that God would send one like Elijah to come and to set his people free. And so the family would leave an empty seat for the guest, Elijah. And then the father would ceremonially wash his hands, get them clean uh, before he would start the dinner. And then he would do something unique. He had three pieces of bread laid out, each wrapped in white silk. He would take the one in the middle, and he would crush it with his hand. Now this would get the attention of the house, so you can imagine, right? Mom's lighting candles. This is a special evening. Some of these kiddos, maybe just for the first time, are like, wow, I'm experiencing this. And father would crush the bread. Then the father would say to the children, hide your eyes and close your eyes. And the father would take the broken piece of bread and hide it somewhere in the house, under a jar, under a chair, in a corner, somewhere to be found later. And then what the father would do is he would begin to tell the story. He would take the first cup and the family would all drink from the first cup. What's interesting about this cup is this cup was the representation of God's promise to deliver the Jews from their burdens. And so what the father would do with each of these elements is he would tell the story of the Passover as they drank the cup, as they ate different pieces of the meal. Now, the cups represented four promises that God made in Exodus chapter 6. So remember, God is speaking to Moses. Moses, I need you to go. Moses is like, I don't think I can. I don't know what to say. God's like, I'll take care of that. Provides for Moses. And ultimately, God makes a promise, and he says to Moses, I want you to go tell the people about what I'm about to do. So in Exodus 6, God makes four promises, starting in verse 6. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So in those two verses, there's four promises. I will bring you out from under the burdens. So the first cup was a reminder of God's promise to bring the people of Israel out from under the burden. The burden of slavery, the burden of oppression, the burden of being under Pharaoh's thumb. The second promise, the second cup, represented that God would deliver them from slavery. I will deliver you from slavery. The third cup represented the promise that God made when he said, I will redeem you. The third cup was the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup was this promise that God made in verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And every time a cup was, 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 was drank uh, drink among the family, and they shared it among the family, the father would remind them which promise that cup pointed to, which promise that cup symbolized. So the father would take the first cup. Take a drink, drink of it, all of you. This is the cup of the promise that God will bring us out from under our burdens. And so then what the father would do is he began to tell the story of the Passover. 
And he would start at the beginning and walk them through God's deliverance and God setting them free from slavery in Egypt. At the conclusion of the story, um, the father then would stop and drink the second cup. But along the way, as they were eating different things and partaking of the different foods, the father was explaining to them, not only does this cup represent God's promise, this lamb that we're eating together, it represents the lamb that was slain so that the death angel would pass over. Those bitter herbs, go ahead, everybody take a bite. Mmm, something like horseradish. Ah, hits your palate. It's like, ugh. Reminded them of what? The bitterness of slavery. The sticky paste, they would take it and get it on their fingers or on a piece of matzah bread and eat it. And the father would remind them, like, this was, the, this was, this was a reflection or a symbolism of the mortar, Right? Your ancestors used to have to make bricks all day long when they were in slavery. The cup of salt water, he would oftentimes say, hey, take your, take your finger and dip it in that salt water and taste it. That's a reminder of the tears, the crying and the weeping of God's people. It's also a reminder of the Red Sea when God, right part of the Red Sea and the nation of Israel crossed over onto dry land. So one by one, the father would tell the story and he would use these, these little elements as like a living parable or a living illustration of God's goodness to the nation of Israel. Finish the story, second cup, the cup that God will deliver you from slavery. Then what would happen, uh, depending on if the family um, held to the tradition of hiding the bread or not, not all the families did, but if they did, what the father would oftentimes do um, after the drinking of the second cup is he would then... Uh, I'm thinking maybe this had to do with the attention span of the kids. I don't know. But he'd say, all right, kids, you ready? And they would get excited. Go find the bread. And so now the kids would depart and go around and find this matzah bread and, uh, and try to find the, you know, the hidden matzah bread and bring it back to the father. And the father would have it there on the table. And then he would unfold it. And they would partake and share in this broken matzah bread. Then after that, uh, what would happen is um, they would then drink the third cup and then it would sing the Hallel, which was um, the word they used to describe Psalm 115, Psalm 116, 117, and 118. So we read that Jesus and the disciples went out and sang a, sung a hymn together. They were probably singing uh, the Psalms, 115 through 118, the Hallel. And so they would sing together. And then after singing, they would partake in the fourth cup, the cup that God made a promise I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. So you have these four cups. The cup, the cup that God will relieve you from your burdens. Second cup, the cup that God will deliver you from slavery. The third cup was the cup of redemption, that God will redeem you. And the fourth cup, that God will take you to be his people, and he will be your God. And so that night in the upper room, Jesus is there as the head of the table, leading his disciples through this Passover meal. Now, what's so amazing, and I love this about Jesus, how he begins to teach these Old Testament principles and traditions in a way where he shows that they're all, they're all pointing towards him, right? So after the resurrection, he opens the scriptures to his disciples and shows them all these stories from the Old Testament, all these ceremonial um, things from the Old Testament, all these things that they used to do in the Old Testament, how they were pointing forward prophetically to the coming of Christ. And so have that in mind now as we read these words from Jesus in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. 
And as they were eating, he took bread, and after, he blessed, after blessing it, what did he do? He broke it and gave it to them and said what? Take, this is my body. For hundreds of years, the Jews have been celebrating this meal with a father breaking a piece of the bread, crushing it under his hand, oftentimes hiding it to be found later, symbolizing who? Jesus. You see the significance when Jesus says, this is my body. He was unveiling the truth to his disciples that he's the piece in the middle that gets broken. These three pieces of bread, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the hiding of this bread would be, would be symbolic of Jesus' burial into the tomb, but not to stay buried, not to stay hidden, but at just the right time, what? To resurrect and to be shared with all. And so Jesus here in this moment says, hey guys, this matzah bread, this is my body, which will be broken for you. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And this was either the, the third cup, the cup of redemption, or the fourth cup, the cup of the promise that I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And Jesus said this, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly i say to you i will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when i drink it new in the kingdom of god and when they had sung a hymn the hallel they went out to the mount of olives now jesus in this moment is showing his disciples the symbolism of these elements and how they were pointing to him and you're probably your mind is already probably going there wait a second, there's a whole lot about this, this Seder dinner that reminds me of what Jesus has done for me. One of the details of the dinner is that the lamb would be slain at three o'clock in the afternoon. It was really important. Slain at three o'clock, and the fathers would take two spigots, like thin spears, and drive one from, from, from one end to the other of the lamb, and then the other one acrossways through the shoulder area, but both of which could not break a bone. And so you had this symbolism of this lamb that was slain, that had been crucified to rescue the nation of Israel from the death angel. Year after year, the fathers were doing this with great care, not even knowing, right? Not even knowing that they were pointing forward testimony to Jesus and what he would do, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all nations. You see in the symbolism, this Passover lamb that was slain, the bitter herbs, the sticky paste reminding us of our burdens and our slavery, the burden of sin, our slavery to sin. If that's a new concept to you, here's, here's a simple way to think about it. Um, think about how many times there's something specific, specific in your life that you know you shouldn't do, that you try not to do, but you keep doing it. Right? If you're a Christian, there's this conviction of the Holy Spirit when you partake in sin right, calling you to repentance from that sin, and so often we find ourselves in this cycle repeating that, that thing we've already asked for forgiveness for. Those of you who aren't Christians, surely there's some things in your life, you're like, I tried to change, I couldn't change this. I can't change who I am on the inside. I need help. The Bible would say that is our, that is our bondage and our slavery to sin. It shackles us. It calls us to obedience. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When you think about Jesus, this lamb that was slain for our sins on the cross, in the tomb, resurrecting from the, the grave, he's doing so to set us free from our sin, to unlock the shackles that keep drawing you back in to the sin. Galatians chapter 5, 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to what? The yoke of slavery. We think about the salt water and that tangible reminder of what tears taste like. You know what tears taste like, don't you? Salty. See, that salt water not just represented the Red Sea and the tears that were shed in slavery, but it represents the tears that you and I shed. Our longing to be set free, both in our suffering, right? In our hardship and in our sorrow, and also in our sin. We need, we need to be set free. Why? Because sin, sin leads to suffering and grieving and longing and this salt water reminds us, even today, of the tears that we shed, the crying out from our hearts. We talked last week about prayer and crying out to God. In the same way the nation of Israel cried out under the burden of slavery, you and I cry out, out of the, from under the burden of the fallen world we live in. We join with creation, Romans 8 says. We groan. For the revealing of the sons of God. And so we can see the symbolism, even going beyond the bread and, and the lamb and the cup. But in the cup, we're reminded of what? Jesus. He's the one who sets us free from our burdens. We're reminded of Jesus, that He is the one who frees us from slavery. We're reminded of Jesus, that He is our Redeemer. He redeems what is lost. He has paid the price to purchase and redeem you and me. And it's Jesus who takes us to be his people and he becomes our God. I want to end with Revelation chapter 5. A few verses here describing the throne room of God. Starting in verse 11, I want you to listen to description here John is writing this Jesus gives him a prophetic vision of what is to come verse 11 John writes then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped the lamb that was slain. Now, Today, there are Christians who partake in the Seder dinner with a sp specific understanding of the Passover meal and its symbolism pointing to the promises of Christ. 
and how all that God promised in Exodus 6 has been fulfilled in Jesus for us. But as a church, we've been commissioned and commanded and instructed to take communion, that specific part of the Passover meal, recognizing the bread and the cup. The bread is the the body of Jesus that has been broken for us, and the cup is the cup of the blood of the new covenant, which has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we asked the question that was asked by um, the youngest child in the house, and I think I skipped over this part, but at the beginning of the meal, whoever the youngest child who could speak was, um, before the father would tell the story, would ask this, this question. And the question was this, Father, why is this night different from any other night? Why, why the big to-do? Why are we sweeping the house? Why are the candles? Why, why is this night different from any other night? And it was on the night of the Passover with Jesus in the upper room that we finally fully understand why that night was different from any other night. We might ask the question today, why is this meal different from any other meal? Why is this bread and this cup why is it different? How is it different than, than what I ate yesterday and, and any other meal that we might share together um, as Christians? And the answer is specifically this. As we partake of the bread and the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're reminding of all that we have in Christ. We're reminding one another that we've been set free from slavery. We're reminding that Jesus has paid the price for our redemption. We're reminding ourselves and one another that he has taken us to be his people and he is our God. And so that's why we take communion every first Sunday here. There's a really important piece of what we read in the Gospel of Mark. Did you notice the preparation, the care that was taken to prepare the house for the Passover meal? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us to take the same kind of preparation with our own hearts. Matter of fact, that Paul's words are this, examine yourselves. And we're not looking for leavened bread. What we're looking for is what? Unconfessed sin. We're looking for for hearts that are maybe flippantly coming into communion, not really thinking about what it's for. We're We're looking for places in our heart where we're saying things with our mouth, and yet our hearts are far from what we're singing and what we're saying. Another thing we should be looking for is any broken relationships. Jesus says, Gospel of Matthew, if you come to the altar to worship, and then something clicks in the back of your mind, you remember you have a broken relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, he says to do what? Okay, just leave your gift there at the altar and go and make it right and then come back and offer your worship. And so when we stop to examine our own hearts, that's what we're doing. We're asking, is there any unconfessed sin? Right, is is, is my heart focused on anything else right now besides Christ? Are there any broken relationships that I need to go address before I partake? And so what we're going to do now is spend some time preparing together uh, to take communion. And the band's going to lead us in singing a song. If that's where your heart is, I want you to stand and sing. But if you just need to stay put and maybe spend some time praying, uh, maybe even confessing some sin before the Lord, you can stay seated, you can come to the front. We have prayer rooms out in the commons, you could go grab a prayer room. Maybe there's somebody here today who you've got a broken relationship with. So before you take communion, maybe you need to grab that person and slip out and go make that right before you offer, offer your gift at the altar. Or maybe that person's not here. Permission to pull out your phone and send a text while we're singing. And maybe your text is like, hey, you're on my heart. Can we talk later today? Can we get together this week? Now, don't use text messages to try to reconcile. 
but you can use it to set up the conversation. So maybe that's where you are today. Maybe God would bring to mind a broken relationship that needs to be dealt with. And so for you, when we're singing this song, you would, you would send that person a text. Hey, can we get together? Can we talk? Can we make things right? So now we're going to take this time to prepare. Um, I'm going to lead us. I'm going to pray over us. The band's going to come out and lead us to sing it. If you want to stay seated, stay seated. If you want to stand and sing, sing. If you want to come to the front, you want to go to the prayer room, whatever you need to do to prepare your heart to take communion, we want you to do that now. Let's pray together. Um, Father, thank you for this really sweet reminder, not just of the meaning of communion, but of all that we have in Christ. Jesus, you truly have set us free from our slavery, from our bondage, and from the burden of sin and death. As we take communion today, we celebrate that together. And not only that, you have come to redeem us, to pay a price for us, to purchase, (laughs) to purchase us. (laughs) What a blessing. Father, we are so unworthy of that. But in it, we see your goodness, your faithfulness, And you have come to take us to be yours, that you may be ours. We are your people. You are our God. Father, now as we stand to sing and pray and respond, would you prepare our hearts today with the same meticulous care that was given to the Jewish households before the Passover meal? God, would we give that same kind of care and observation into our own lives and hearts today? Lead us into confession. Lead us into repentance. Lead us into hard conversations. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.